In today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations, Aaron Stark. I grew up and my family was a really drug addicted and violent house. And there was a lot of heavy drug use, extreme violence. He raped my mom in front of me. He would beat me, me and my brother. He kidnapped me and said that I was dead and my brother was gonna be dead. We moved around, I went to like 40 different schools. We moved every every couple of months, it seemed. With that chaotic lifestyle, I didn't really have much self-esteem and much self-worth. I was overweight, I was, I smelled really bad, and I never had clean clothes. My clothes were always dirty and ripped. Growing up in a home of abuse and being the bullied kid at school. I was really despondent and really depressed, and I started cutting myself with razor blades. And my arms were co- just covered in small pockmark cuts. I, I just felt like I was worthless and I wanted to die. Everybody around me had been telling me I was worthless for a very long time. It was just, that was a worthless piece of shit was kind of the constant. Aaron reached his breaking point and was about to take revenge. You start hating yourself and then you move out, move downwards and you think you're gonna lash out and hurt other people. And then you move even further down. You have nothing to lose because you have nothing. So you don't value anything. You don't even value your own life. You don't care if you live or die. You don't care if you go to jail, none of that. A jail would be an improvement to the life I was in. I've said, hey, can I get a gun? Preferably one that shoots a lot of bullets. But was prevented from the unspeakable by a simple act of kindness. But I think he knew something. He knew that I was going to do something. Either I was going to hurt myself or I was going to hurt a lot of people, one or the other. But his simple acts of kindness, it it opened my eyes and changed my my world completely. I didn't end up getting the gun. It changed my, my opinion. A touching story about bullying, the mindset of someone who has nothing to lose, and what we can do to prevent further tragedies from happening. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire. Learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. Hey, this is Rob Conrad from Switzerland. And usually coming up with an introduction to the extraordinary people that I'm talking to is quite easy. Because all you really need to do is to talk about their um, specific abilities or their achievements or their contributions to society or whatever it is that makes them extraordinary. But today's guest made me realize that it's not always that easy. Because... Sometimes in life, what really defines us are not so much the things that we do, but sometimes what defines us in life are the things that we decide not to do. And that's especially the case with today's guest, Aaron Stark, because when he was a teenager, after years of um, heavy physical and mental abuse at home, after years of being bullied um, in one of the many schools he had to go to, he just couldn't take it anymore. He had enough. He lost all hope. And he made a decision. He made a decision to get a gun and to use that gun to cause as much harm as possible to as many people as possible. But luckily, before he could follow through with his plan, he was saved um, by a random act of kindness by somebody that he knew. And he managed to turn his life around. He's now a happily married husband, a proud father of four. And he kept the story for himself until... 
early this year, there was another massacre at one of the schools and he decided to go public with his story. He decided to share his very important message about how all of us can do something to help people, to help young people who have lost their hope and who can't see the light of the tunnel, how we can help those people. He's a TED speaker. His TED talk has been watched by millions of people across the globe. There's a book about his works in the writing. And I'm really thankful and I'm really happy to have you here with me today. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much for having me. I, I appreciate it. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really good. Doing really good. It's been kind of gloomy and rainy here today, but it's been a good day. It's my day off. So, Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Man, so it takes a lot, a lot of balls to come out with a story like you did. So, uh, Thank you. Thank what, you. What made you do that? Um, well, my wife and my daughter were... were after that after parkland which was a really terrible school shooting here in the states it was it was down in florida and it just it hit really close to home i have two high school age kids mm -hmm. and earlier in the year my daughter had lost a friend to suicide she mm -hmm. shot herself in the head yeah. and so it's it's a really close to home subject and then after parkland my eldest daughter and my wife were talking and crying with each other and like having this big heartfelt conversation about how could someone ever get to that point where they could do that? How could someone ever get to the spot where they felt like killing somebody was a, was the reasonable way out. And sadly I understand because of like you said, back in the day I was in that spot and it's when you, it's such a rare thing to feel that I don't think people really understand what it's like when you're, when you get that depressed and what it's like to be that close to wanting to annihilate everything around you. And so I, I just made a quick Facebook post and that was not really meant to go public. It was just for my family. Um, but at the same time, I also was in this political discussion group and it was one of the kind of groups where there's a lot of really partisan bickering, a lot of uh, insults thrown around like libtard and conservacuck and things like that, just stupid juvenile kind of insults. And, but occasionally have some good political discussions. And so since it was the topic of the day, I posted it to that group too. And that got out and evidently connected with some people. And my local news did a story on me And that evidently connected with a lot of people got 17 million views last time I checked, something like that. And so then it's just been this roller coaster of responses, but the, the thing that keeps me going with it and, and you said that takes a lot of balls. And for me, honestly, it, I think it really did for me. It would, that's just my normal. It was just what I was growing up with and living. And it was just kind of, the reality that I was existing in. So I didn't really see it as being that out of the normal, honestly, until I got all the response until I got, I, I feel like I'm looked at now as a little bit of a unicorn because people who get to that spot who are really in that darkness, either die or end up in prison. And I didn't really realize that until I started talking about it. And, but within the first week of me coming and writing that Facebook post, um, I got contacted by a couple of major survivors groups who have been through a couple of these massive tragedies. The Parkland students, I, an uncle who had a niece in the room whose friend got shot and killed in Parkland. He told me that his niece watched my video and it, it let her get a little, or watch the story about me and it let her get a little bit of uh, peace and made her feel better. And please keep talking about it. 
And that combined with a similar response from the Vegas survivors group from that terrible mass shooting in Vegas with something like 60 something people killed from the guy shooting out of the Mandalay Bay. And then from the Sandy Hook parents, which to me is the absolute worst of all the school shootings. That's the one where it was a elementary school or a kindergarten elementary school. And it was something like 22 small children got killed. Mm-hmm. And the parents survivors group from that contacted me and they all told me to keep going. And to me, anything else that might come is just gravy on top of that. You know, it's just icing on the cake. It, that made it completely worth it. And all the pain that I went through and all the trolling that I might come across, it's, it's all just, it doesn't affect me whatsoever because it's, it's, I'm, if I can use my darkness to help fuel helping someone else, then that's what I want to do. So for those um, who are not familiar with your story, can you talk a little bit about uh, what was it like at that time and sure. how did you feel sure. at that time and what made you, I don't know, what, what led up to that decision basically? Absolutely. I'll start from the beginning. So I grew up and my family was a really drug addicted and violent house and there was a lot of heavy drug use, extreme violence. I always called it movie of the week level violence. Things like my real dad, um, we had the very first permanent restraining order that was issued in Colorado was on my father. Oh shit, okay. And, and it was the kind of stuff where he would, he raped my mom in front of me, he would beat me and my brother, he kidnapped me and said that I was dead and my brother was going to be dead if my mom didn't meet him somewhere. And then she, when she got there, she, he tried to beat her there too. Luckily there was police there, so that got stopped but a lot of those kind of really outlandish kind of violent stories that just seemed to be the everyday kind of thing for me like i would come home and see people on crack beating each other up and i just go to my bedroom and play video games but in the process we moved around a lot we moved around i went to like 40 different schools we moved every every couple of months it seemed and it was never really on a plan there was a lot of getting woken up at four o'clock in the morning to get in a car and drive all the way across the country because the cops are knocking on the door and we need to get out. So we'd leave everything we had, pack what little tiny bit of stuff we could have, we could get that really quick and then run across the country. Then a couple months later, start it all again. So I was always the new kid and I went with all the different schools I went to. It, it was compounded by the fact that with that chaotic lifestyle, I didn't really have much self-esteem and much self-worth. So I didn't take care of myself physically. I was overweight. I was, I smelled really bad. I never had clean clothes. My clothes were always dirty and ripped and I, so that never was very popular. I was back in the day before superheroes were cool. So I was a big comic book geek and not only were they not cool back in the eighties, but it was actively damaging to your coolness to be into comic books. So that was never a help. And I would get picked on a lot. So I developed a, there was just new kid, new bullies everywhere. So I started to develop a self-depreciation kind of thing where I'd insult myself more than I would, anybody else could insult me. So if you're coming at me with a fat joke, I have five fat jokes that are better than yours. So you're not going to be able to hurt me. But in the process, I completely destroyed any self-esteem that I may have just kind of grounded into dust. Mm-hmm. And as I got older, that, that was early on. That was, that was nine to probably, probably early, early four or five years old till nine or 10. 
is, is about what that is. And then from my teenage years, that kind of self-loathing kind of metabolized and I discovered the whole darker aspect of, of culture. So I got into darker music like Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson, Ministry, that kind of stuff. And I, I not only embraced it, I kind of just ran headlong into it and wore, wore it like a coat. Like I just, I, I wasn't the goth kid. I was the goth, the guy that told all the goth kids what to do. And so it, but it was, and I, I always had gatherings of people around me, but I never had any friends. It was more just, I, I considered them disaster groupies. They just kind of wanted to see the, the moving car crash of my, my, terrible life that I was going through because the whole time I was doing that I was I would go home and my parents were massively into crack cocaine so I, there was lots of crack and, and lots of drinking lots of violence so I would have to go home if I if I went home I'd be fighting and so I ran away around 14 years old and didn't really come back on a steady level till I was 17 and during that time I was living on the streets I was doing a lot of LSD I wasn't um, I never, I didn't smoke marijuana until I was 19, but I did a lot of LSD when I was a teenager mm. and that it was an escape from, it was, I, I was big into escapism looking back on it in comic books and video games and tripping acid. That was all just to kind of escape the reality that I was in that was just killing me basically. And so I was really despondent and really depressed. I had, I, I, my parents had shown me the way to react to people and I, you kind of learn how to react to everybody by what you're taught growing up. So if you're shown that pol politeness and, and kindness will help you that you'll do that. But I wasn't, I was shown that lying and stealing and violence was the way to get what you wanted. So kind of adopted that in my teenage years. So I was lying to all my friends. I stole their things. I ended up being very isolated and very alone. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was screaming into the void. And I, it got really, it got really bad when I started cutting, um, cutting is when you're depressed, you can get into self-harm. And I did, I started cutting myself with razor blades and my arms were just covered in small pockmark cuts and just all over the place. And it started getting really serious. I, I just felt like I was worthless and I wanted to die. Everybody around me had been telling me I was worthless for a very long time. It was just, that was a worthless piece of shit was kind of the constant insult that I would have. <clears throat> and so it was, I, I ended up in what the one few friend I had left who I was already try, trying to do my best to damage that friendship. I was living in his shed in the back of his house mm -hmm. and his parents wouldn't let me sleep in the house because I was, I was a bad influence, obviously. And so he let me sleep in their tool shed and every now and then. And so I'm sitting there in the shed. My arm is just covered in cuts and blood so much that I'm dripping blood on the floor. I'm sitting in this dingy gray chair and the roof above me has got open holes in it. Rain's pouring down. I, I just realized I'm that there's not really any more bottom to go to than that. And so I, I wanted to die, but part of me didn't. So I, the, the next morning I realized how close I was to death. I got up, went up to my friend's house, knocked on his door and asked to talk to uh, the mom and asked if I could use the phone. And I called social services 
I had to look it up in the phone book. I just, I, I couldn't think of where to go. That was the only thing I could think of. So I grabbed the yellow pages and looked up the number for social services. And I called them and told them that I was having uh, problems and I was feeling suicidal. And they had me come in for a meeting. Mm-hmm. And so I borrowed some bus fare from my friend's mom and got on the bus and went down there. And by the time I got there, they did just call me. They also called my mom. And so she was one of the biggest sources of abuse growing up. Lots of, she, I have scars on a lot of different parts of my body from where she's hit me and where she's broken plates over my head, things like that. And lots of mental scarring, lots of, uh, I would consider it a PTSD at this point, mm-hmm. but they called her in. And since we had spent our entire lives running from authorities and lying to officers and lying to social workers, because anytime anybody got a whiff of what was going on in my house, we would, we would just make up a story and move away. So she knew exactly what to say. And she got them to believe that I was making it all up. And it was all just a fo- uh, hoax. Even though in the meeting, I had produced a bloody razor blade from my pocket, thrown it on the table and said, that exactly is my problem right there. This is what's going on. They still didn't believe me. They sent me home with her. And then on the way home with her, she turned to me and she said the worst sentence that anyone's ever said to me. She said that next time I, I should have done a better job and next time she'll buy me the razor blades. And I, I had always kind of worn that darkness as a jacket, like I said, but I just, I, I, you want me to be the bad person, I'm going to be the bad person. So I just ran into it. I, I'm going to be, I'm the, I'm the piece of shit and I'm the evil one. Okay, well, here's, here's what's going to happen. And so I went from just being kind of embracing it to using it to hurt as many people around me as I possibly could. I was lashing out in every way I could do. And a couple months later, I was basically in that same spot only without my friend's shed because by this point I had pushed everybody away. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually sleeping in a gravel pavement outside of my then girlfriend's house. Mm -hmm. And I was on the, sleeping in her driveway. And I was at this, in this position where I would wake up in the morning, go to the grocery store next door, eat a bunch of free samples that they'd be putting out, a cup of coffee, go take a quick sponge bath in the bathroom with you with whatever wet towel I could find, and then go sit freezing on a bench outside the restaurant next door to it. And that was my, that was my day because I didn't have anywhere else to be. And I was suicidal again. And I knew that I could, last time I had told them ahead of time and they called in my mom. So I wasn't going to do that this time. I was going to show up somewhere and say, I need help because I, I, I have to do it on my own. And so across the street from my high school that I was at at the time, um, which I wasn't attending, I was just in, enrolled in the school, but I never actually was in class. I was at school all the time, but ever in school. And the, so across the street from it, there was a place that said mental health on the sign. I didn't really look too far into it beforehand, but I knew that the sign said mental health. So I went there to go see if I could get some help. And I told them that I was feeling suicidal and I was depressed and I felt like I was being ignored by everybody around me. And I was, and they still didn't believe me. Something about how since the previous therapist was, didn't feel fit to admit me that this one didn't think she could either. And I don't know whether that was from being too young and inexperienced or if it was just, uh, I, I don't know what it was, but she told me, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And just sent me out with nothing. Mm. And that just made my mind snap. I, I had tried twice to get myself help. Nobody, I was, I really was worthless. And that was it. 
And so I hit the, the stage. There's levels to depression. It's kind of like diving. It, even when you talk about it, they talk about diving into the depths or going down the spiral or falling into the darkness. That's because there's kind of stages to it. Like you start, you start with self-loathing and you start hating yourself and then you move out, move downwards and you think you're going to lash out and hurt other people. And then you move even further down and underneath when you hurt other people that I call it annihilation, that spot, you, there isn't, you, there is no good. There's nothing you care about. You have nothing to lose because you have nothing. So you don't value anything. You don't even value your own life. You don't care if you live or die. You don't care if you go to jail. None of that. A jail would be an improvement to the life I was in. And so when you're at that point, something really strange happens. The, the earlier places, earlier stages are very emotional and they're very tempestuous and chaotic and lots of violent emotions and lots of conflicting opinions. Once you get to that annihilation stage, all that kind of vanishes and it ends up being really quiet and still. And because when you don't have anything to care about, you just stop caring. And so there's nothing that can hurt you because there's nothing in order to be hurt. You have to have given a shit about what was just getting hurt. Mm-hmm. So when you don't care, there's nothing that can hurt you. And so I was in that spot. I had hit the point of annihilation and I knew that in my school, there was some gangbangers. This was the early nineties, mid nineties. So gangs were still really prevalent. Lots of Crips and Bloods around North high. It was North high in Denver, Colorado was the school. And I knew that they had access to guns because they had been talking about it a lot. And a couple of them had brought guns to school before. And I knew them because I was always, like I said, I was kind of living at the school at the time where I was sleeping in the park across the street. And I was just kind of always there. They knew I wasn't in class. They knew I wasn't like, I wasn't going to be a narc, obviously. They had sold drugs to my family. They knew that I wasn't on the, the side of the police at the point. So I wasn't a danger to them. And we, they were friendly with me. We got along on a social level. So, but I didn't really know anybody beyond nicknames and first names, but I, and neither day didn't really know me that well either. But I went to one of the one I knew the best and I said, Hey, I, can I get a gun? Preferably one that shoots a lot of bullets. And he didn't really ask any questions. He's like, yeah, sure, man. I'll get three days. It takes me about three days to get one. They give me an ounce of weed and I'll get that for you. Said, All right, cool. So I planned on doing it. And the plan that I had, I had always kind of joked about it. Like, cause when you're in that, that, that dark spot and you're in the earlier stages, you, the, it's kind of be funny to, and, and it's a relaxing thing in a way to kind of fantasize and joke with your friends like, Oh, I do this. And I do that. Kind of, that kind of stuff. And it's never, never really serious. There's a lot of that nowadays. It's trolling is basically the output of that. But I, during all those, that time I had joked about and kind of made a plan that would be, would have been viable about attacking either a school or a food court because they both had um, a, a, a surprise element and a large amount of people that could be killed in a short amount of time, regardless of the, of the security situation. Because my school had armed police stationed in it at all times. There was multiple armed police officers in North High at all times. So, but it, I just factored it into the plan. Not me at all. That was just part of the plan. So I was going to walk into the food court and shoot as many people as possible and then kill myself. And do the same thing at my school food court. I just walk in through off the, the field and go, go over the fence and just walk in and start killing as many people as I could. And it wasn't about the people. 
It wasn't directed towards the people that particularly it was because it wasn't that, Oh, you bullied me. So you deserve it. Or you picked on me. So you deserve it. It wasn't like that at all. It was completely random and it was an expression of my anger and pain. It was me screaming out that you guys don't want to hear me and you want to ignore me. You're going to hear me now. I'm going to fucking make you listen to me this time. And it was, so I, I went my, my family being druggies, getting a hold of the ounce wasn't really a problem. We had a guy that was sleeping on the floor that was, always had weed on him, so I just kind of stole it from him. And I went and gave it to the guy, and I was waiting for three days. That was within three days. But luckily, I wasn't really alone in that darkness. That earlier friend who I've been living in his shed, his name's Mike, and he had been watching from afar pretty much what was going on with me. And we had been close friends for a lot of years before that. We got, we made friends about 12 years old. And by this time I was like 17 years old. So about five years we've been friends at that point. And so he had seen firsthand what I'd been going through and he saw what was happening with my mom. And he was standing outside when I would get beaten, kicked out of my house and that I got beaten and kicked out on my 16th birthday and went to his house and his mom made a brownie for me and shoved a giant red taper candle, one of the big table candles in the middle of it. That was my birthday cake for 16. Um, so he had seen all of this and he just was, he, he wouldn't let me leave his side. He's like, dude, come on with me. We're going to go and hang out at my house. I'm like, okay, cool. So we go over to his house. Like, God, just hour. Let me give you a meal, dude. Let's watch a movie. Let's just relax. It's okay. We can, you can talk about it if you want to, but you don't have to, but just, don't do whatever you're going to do. Just, it's okay. We got this. And did he know about your plans. So did he, did he have, he, he didn't know about my plans, but I think he knew something. He knew that I was going to do something. Something was, it was coming to a head. Either I was going to hurt myself or I was going to hurt a lot of people. One or the other, because he had heard me talk about it before. Just in that, that kind of fantasizing conversation. He had heard me talk about that kind of stuff. And so, but he didn't know any details about it. I hadn't spoken to him about what the, what I was going through and, but his simple acts of kindness, it, it opened my eyes and changed my, my world completely. It, it stopped. I, I didn't end up getting the gun. It changed my, my opinion. I ended up spending the weekend at his house. We ended up playing video games and watching movies and just having a normal day. And for once I felt like I was a person and like a person and when you're treated like a person when you don't even feel like you're a human it'll change your entire world mm. and it did for me and it was it wasn't it what it was kindness that saved me but it wasn't the kind of kindness that was like hey can i fix you there's something wrong with you what what can i do for you is there a program i can get you in because that kind of stuff is really overbearing and it can get really alienating and it can push you off push you away like oh i'm broken i need to be fixed okay whatever it was literally just, all right, dude, it's okay. You're normal. These are nor it's a normal reaction to feel that way to this shit that you've been going through. It's okay. Treating you as a normal uh, human being for once. Yeah, you're a normal human being. It's okay to be sad about being hurt. It's okay to run away from someone screaming at you while they're on drugs. It's it's a normal reaction to feel bad about that kind of stuff. And it doesn't make you a monster. And that the realization that I wasn't worthless and that I wasn't the bad guy and that I wasn't a monster to me. It, it completely changed me. And, but it wasn't like some light switch that went off. It wasn't like some click. Oh, now I'm better. 
I got out of that phase of, of homicide and of out of that annihilation stage. And I saw, felt emotion again and felt that I had something that I could potentially look forward to. And, but I was still depressed and I was still suicidal. And after a couple of years, I believe it was my 19th or 20th birthday. I was again in that kind of suicidal state. I had never, my family has deep hooks in me that my mom, as much pain as I went through, I could never leave my mom completely. Like it was, I it was one of those things where I would always go to her and respond when she needed something, or I would go check in occasionally and see how she was, even though everything was chaotic and hurting. And it just, it, she's my mom. So I, I always, I was always kind of around my mom. And so that the violence in my family got worse and worse and worse and worse. And there was never any like upswing at all. There was never any good parts that came up. It was like just consistently this big downward spiral. And so about my 19th or 20th birthday, I can't remember which one it was. Um, I, I was in that suicidal spot again and I hadn't told anybody about what, what was going to happen. I wasn't homicidal. I was going to, I had gotten a large amount of, of drugs and I didn't take drugs besides LSD at this point, but I had gotten a large amount of drugs and I was going to take all of them in the night and kill myself. And, but I didn't tell anybody that. And my birthday was going to be the last day. And so I was hanging out at Mike's house in the afternoon that day. And he's like, okay, we're going to go to Amber's house tonight. And Amber was another friend of ours. And she, she had hung out. She was one of Mike's friends. She was like, he had a social circle. So she was one of his friends. And we would go over to her house occasionally and hang out for like a couple hours, you know, kind of shoot the shit. And then we'd go hang out, do our other stuff. So it wasn't really out of the normal to go to Amber's house. And so we, I thought it was just going to be another go over, watch a movie, like have a drink and then go home. And then I got there. And instead of it being that, it was a surprise party for me. Mm-hmm. And it was a whole bunch of people. Some, most of them I hadn't even met before. And they had made me a blueberry peach pie for my birthday. And so instead of going home and killing myself, I partied with a bunch of friends and ate a blueberry peach pie and had a wonderful time having this, this loving experience with my friends. Mm-hmm. And it's, that was the last time that I tried to kill myself. And that was after that, I just, Hold on. Of course, right now, Windows wants to update. Let me move my, my window. Um, after, after that, it was just a, a, a recovery. Good 10, 15 years of, of recovery where I went through and focused on, just on getting myself out of those situations, getting myself out of that spot where I felt like I was worthless and realizing my own self-worth. And then I went through a process of confronting the people that I thought had hurt me the most but not in, and I think this is a very important step, not in in an aggressive way and not in an accusatory way. I didn't go to anybody and say, you hurt me and you deserve to pay or this is what happened and you need to get it. It wasn't like that at all. It was just, I know this is what happened. This is the reality of what I went through and I'm not going to forget it. And so my opinion of you is now completely changed. So whatever relationship we had before is done. And it was just acknowledgement. And I felt that that was a very cathartic thing and it helped me move past a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. And then what finally did it, what finally made me completely jump over that ledge of being on the good side again is I have my first daughter mm-hmm. and my older two right now kids, my eldest by myself, she's 11 years old. Her name's Natasha. 
And she having her finally literally gave me something to live for and something that I would, I would die for. So that completely changed me. Then from then on, it's been trying to get on the positive side, trying to, to make my life a better thing. And yeah. Wow. So that's, that's a lot to digest really. Um, uh, I'm glad you made it. I have to say that. So I'm I'm glad. Thank you. Me too. Um, it's an incredibly inspiring story. So it's, it's, uh, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, like I say, I'm like a walking, ask me anything. So literally you can ask me any question you want. Yeah, well, I, I will. I will. <laughs> don't worry. Too personal. I mean, help me a little bit to understand that point where you really wanted to, to go after other people. So I, I can understand that your situation leads to a point where you don't have hope and where you feel suicidal. Mm-hmm. That part I can understand, but in a way, how, how does it switch from, su- well, from hurting yourself to hurting others? Exactly. Why, why not just kill yourself <clears throat> and others alone? Uh, no, not, because not anymore. And why, why involve others? If, if I, I, not to put I, the people that bullied you in the first mm-hmm. place. Well, I think that it's, First off, it ex- was extremely, an extremely selfish urge. Okay, so let's, let's get that out of the way front. Let me just say flat out, it was not at all a positive thing. There's nothing good about it. It was the most terrible and destructive and, and atrocious thing that I had ever thought about attempting. And so it was, there's nothing that I would ever say, nothing that I would ever do now to encourage, applaud, approve of, or any of that for those kind of urges. That, there, there is a way out of it, and that, that is not the way. Okay. So I was wrong in my thinking at the time, just so we can preface, mm-hmm. explain how, what the feeling I was in, but you got to understand it was a bad place to be. And these are negative feelings to have. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you're in that spot, my, for myself personally, it was, I felt invisible. I felt like nobody, nobody cared about me. I felt like, and I had told my friends this for a long time or people around me for a long time that I felt like nobody was ever going to remember me. Like nobody was ever going to remember nobody. Like when I walked out of the room, everybody forgot that I existed. And it, I seemed like no matter what was going on, no matter how much pain I was in, nobody, nobody cared and nobody was paying any attention. And so it was my, my scream out that you're going to listen to me. It was, it was me demanding attention and me basically throwing a big fit is what it, what it amounts to. It's the equivalent of throwing a fit as a toddler that you, you're not, that I want this and ah, give it to me. It's that only on a much bigger, deadlier level. Give me that. What was that? Give me that attention that I deserve. Exactly. Exactly. Give me the attention that I crave. And it's, one of the weird things about attention and wanting it is it doesn't necessarily need when when you, when you crave attention, the attention doesn't have to be positive. That's um, negative. Attention can be positive. There's, there's a comfort and calmness in that kind of darkness. When you're, when you're in that kind of depression and it becomes your normal, it actually is a comfortable and peaceful place. Like it, it becomes your regular to, and, and it's relaxing in a way to be around that kind of violence. Huh? At least somebody notices you or exactly. At, well, at, even at, at least you feel something because one of the things about my, my uh, life growing up was that I felt for the longest time, like I was just watching my life as a movie pass me by and I had no control over any of it. 
And I, I, that's what I felt repeatedly. I was, I would say that I felt like I'm watching my life as a movie. I'm just standing by and watching everything pass me by. And even my own emotions, I didn't have any real agency over. Like I was in a lot of pain and anger and, and anguish and having to deal with, I learned early on that I was like, uh, people, you talk about the fight or flight syndrome, people fight, flight or freeze. Mm-hmm. And I learned right away that I'm a fighter. I don't, I do not freeze and I do not run away. And I learned that because I've been in those situations where shit's going down right now and you have to go from zero to a hundred in two seconds and then it's going to stop right afterwards. Mm-hmm. But you have to decide right now if you're going to do this and it's, it is a life or death situation. If you don't move, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And I've been in those situations because I would do things like I came home one day and I wa- would walk in from my, I was working at a Seven Eleven. and I was like 16, 17 years old. And I walked into my house and I, nobody saw me come home. I walked into my room and sat down, turned on the TV, got on the phone with a friend of mine and heard of like a boom, boom. I step out and literally right next to my doorway is my stepdad with my mom with her, his hand around her throat with her uh, foot up off the ground, leaning into the wall, choking. Her. Mm-hmm. And so I immediately go from talking with my friend to dropping the phone. I grab him by the throat. I was a really big teenager. Okay. So I was big and strong and I, I was the mosh pit. So I could, when I went to concerts, I'd push over like 50 people at a time. Cause that I was that kind of guy. So I was scary big at the time. And so I grabbed him by the throat, slam him into the microwave, slam him through the fridge door, knock that, off, knock that off the fridge, and then literally push him into the back wall of the garage and start pushing him through the wall because it was a kind of a thin wall. So I start pushing, the wall starts bulging out. And, so I, and then I just drop him, walk right back into my room and grab the phone, get back on the phone. So in a split second, I go from, from zero to 100 and then stop right away. And that kind of, to get that, it, it's, from what I've talked to and people I've talked to, it's very similar to being on a battlefield. You get that kind of sense of that, the lulls of normalcy and then punctuated by extreme moments of insanity. And it, it can be very traumatic, but when you, when you're in, when you're doing all that, that the flip from suicidal to homicidal can be kind of easy. It, it, it's, you, you don't care about yourself and you don't care about what anything that you're doing. You don't care about any of your life. You don't, you don't care if you live or die. You don't care if they shoot you. You don't care if it hurts. And at the same time, you want to be heard and you feel invisible and you want to scream. Mm-hmm. And that combination means that you're going to scream anywhere you can and it doesn't matter what the response is. Mm-hmm. So and, what I'm starting to understand is the, um, the mindset. Why not just, just kill the people who bullied you and the people who were responsible for your suffering so why go random it was well it be, because it was to me that wouldn't have been have been fitting it would actually for me personally i would have left my mom and my stepdad alive to watch the destruction of what i did and have to live with that mm-hmm. to me that was more painful to have to live with the fact that they produced a monster okay and so that was the punishment to them that's why I, they honestly were never a target to of anything that i was going to do And the people at your school who bullied you? Um, Yeah, but that, honestly, it was so omnipresent and so prevalent that that turned into a faceless mob. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, I didn't have like three particular bullies that picked on me a lot. It was more that I had 70 or 80 bullies at every school. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was just a hatred of humanity by that point. It was, I, I, 
I thought that everybody that looked at me thought that I was a worthless piece of shit. So I was just going to be the worthless piece of shit that everybody thought I was. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that you had a lot of positive reactions on social media mm -hmm. and from news channels and so on. Um, people are cruel despite whatever people do. And did you have any reactions saying, you know, he's just someone trying to get attention and he's just oh. Well, anything. so maybe he's just making up a story and you know going to news being a ted speaker now so it's just uh, well the, on the on the making up the story part that one got easily and quickly debunked because of course that's that i got that right away but i do have one big advantage of this with the people that i talk about are still active in my life at this time so okay. i have both uh mike and amber are still close friends of mine mike is still my best friend amber i still talk with her all the time um The people who were in school with me at North are still my friends today so on Facebook. We found each other. So I have both classmates who watched me go through it, people who were the bullies of mine, who, were, who I talk about explicitly in the talk. Like, I'm easily verifiable with the story. The, 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 and the, the only, uh, out of all of the story that's come up, um, out of all the responded, it's amazing the amount of trolls that I've received. Uh, just guess, take a guess, how many of you would think would be a troll trolling someone like me on the internet how many do you think that would be i mean looking at the average youtube videos if you had like a couple of million views i would expect a few thousand probably um well on for uh, i have to distinguish this because in my opinion there's two types of trolls the, the insulting trolls on a personal attack level okay on the youtube on the youtube video i've had zero okay okay i've had juvenile trolls which are the obvious kind of the like they they say something about my weight or they say like yeah. well of um i'm a school shooter too or they say something like like it's obviously a juvenile kind of like ha 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 kind of kind of thing mm -hmm. and that to me i don't even count that as trolling that's that's really low grade it's be an idiot you know like posting lyrics to a song there's the song pumped up kicks that evidently talks about Uh, school shooting a lot of there's like a couple hundred post lyrics to that song like that's some kind of troll and or they just use the title like i was almost a school shooter wow like and and like that to me that's not a troll so i don't even count those guys and but what's funny about that that section is i'd say about 40 percent of them by this point on the youtube video actually apologize or do that kind of jokey trolling in the first part and then say, Oh, by the way, I watched the video and it was really powerful and really impressive. And thanks a lot for sharing it. Okay. And so it's that I get that both sides, but on personal level, like personal messages sent to me, because I got the biggest response that I've received personally has been through my direct messages over Facebook mm -hmm. and or Twitter or email by this point. Um, so, and that's over 20,000 messages. Okay. Wow. And from literally all over the globe, from every, every continent, and um from new zealand australia sweden pakistan um brazil uh germany england france all of them uh every state all through canada and out of those ones 20,000 personal messages to me i got less than 10 trolls wow okay of any of any kind of either side i would have expected way more no less than 10 and five of those are blood related to me Okay. Family, yeah. So, cause my mom, my grandma, my brother, they disown me. They won't, they don't want anything to do with me. They, and, and the reason is because they don't want me talking about what happened in the past. I'm making the family look bad. 
So in my opinion, if you're upset about me talking about the truth of what happened when I was growing up and you're not paying attention to what I am now, then it's not my problem. And you're the one that's doing the wrong here. So mm-hmm. that's not going to stop me one bit. But the, the, the outpouring of positive response has just been amazing. From it, It's crossed every boundary, every age level, like from the young depressed kid to the CEO of major corporations. Mm-hmm who are, have spent hours on the phone with me crying because I also made a point with all the 20,000, I've personally responded to about 98% of those. Mm-hmm. So I, and, and not just some form response, like personal responses to everybody that I can talk to. And it's Republicans, Democrats, Trump supporters, Trump haters, uh, gun opponents, gun advocates, it, all walks of life. They've all, they've, they find a common ground in that, that sense of pain and loneliness and feeling like you're worthless, I think that's near universal. I think that almost everybody feels that. They just feel it at different levels. So the kid who's getting picked on at school and then comes home and has to work really hard to make their parents proud is, has the same pain that I had. I, mine's an extreme. But mine also is not as extreme as it gets. I am, I, one of the weirdest parts about my story that people don't see is that it is that... I am totally not abnormal. There are thousands of people who have went through similar or if not worse things than me just in my state and millions across the globe. This is that sense of the, the, the pain and depression is the root of a ton of our problems in my opinion. Yeah. And I, it's, I personally think it's rooted in the sense of xenophobia that we have that the person is different from us is, is evil. And so that causes the stigma that if, since I'm depressed, that's what makes people think that I'm going to get trolled. If I'm depressed and I, and I had those bad feelings that something must be wrong with me and I must be the bad person. So if I, and if I'm expressing that and if I'm crying that I'm weak and I'm somehow damaged because of that, or like there's all the stigma put on something that's different than us. That's the other that, that we, we start to hate. And that has for so much in our society that it's, I, it, it seems that like in the weird, in a weird way, my story and the response to it is directly connected to Trumpism and it's directly connected to the Me Too movement. And all of these have the same underlying fundamental realities that we have to look at the people who are in pain and who are angry, not as monsters and demons, but as people with issues that we need to listen to. And so that's why when I talk about this stuff, I, I, um, I never mention and I never push the ideals of gun control or mental health. Yeah. Saying either one of those things to me completely diverts the conversation. And they, the other side has so many presuppositional arguments and preloaded um, responses that if as soon as you mention gun control, the anti-gun control people have everything they want to say against the diverts the argument and you get lost in the shuffle. So instead of saying either of those, instead of saying mental health, I say I felt I was worthless and I was abused because I was, I was told I was worthless all the time. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying gun control, I say if you're licensed and you're an adult, own whatever gun you want. Be licensed and regulated. I just want to keep the guns out of the kids' hands who was in the position I was in back in the day. Stop them from getting the gun. Mm-hmm. There's an easy middle ground to that. And go ahead. Yeah, what's outrageous to me is you've been reaching out for help not once but twice mm-hmm. and 
at least once um, it even turned against you and the second time you've just been ignored. So what should someone do who's in the same position like you were? I mean, I can, I can imagine that a lot of people have exactly this fear and it's, it's incredible that this, it's, I mean, it's horrible that this happens when you turn to someone looking for help and you, you are you know, being stepped in the back even more. Yeah. And, and the worst part about it is especially the hardest part is for our kids in school because there's such a lack of, of even counselors to talk to in schools, let alone ones that will listen to you, you know? And I think that, I think that's one of the hardest problems to tackle. I think that we need to have competent counselors that are, are empathetic, but I think it also needs to work more at a ground level, like a grassroots level where we start looking at the people who are in that pain as potential friends and do it, do it on the, on a small personal level. One of the biggest dangers that I see us falling down as a country is, and as a society is this push to point out the pe the kids who might be in danger. Like I understand that we want to protect ourselves from threats, but looking at every kid who's in pain and every kid who's depressed and every kid who is in that dark place as a potential school shooter and reporting them to the FBI involved in all that, that is just going to create more monsters. We're, we're going to push the outcasts further out to the dark. And instead of that, you, you have to think about there's, there's a really small percentage of people who will actually follow through on that terrible act. Okay. And when you actually follow through with it, then you've crossed a line and you deserve the punishment that comes at you. Mm -hmm. But then before you get to that point, there's a much larger percentage of people who are in that dark area where it's a possibility, where it's, they've been thinking about it, where they're in that kind of pain. And even if it's just personally directed, I think that we need to remove that barrier between suicide and homicide. They're both violent acts that take a life. And so that same urge, just because it's flipped the other way and one's attacking the other one, one's attacking yourself, it doesn't mean that suicidal urges aren't just as bad as homicidal urges. So when we have those kinds of thoughts, we want in an empath empathetic way and not look at the person like, oh, you're going to be a threat, so we need to turn you to the FBI. Find, talk to them. Smile at them. Treat them like they're a person. One of the easiest ways to look at how this phenomenon works in reality is look at something like goth culture, okay? Mm -hmm. Goth culture, the kids, the, the, you dress up in the spike clothes and the dark mascara and the, the makeup and the, the trench coats and you have all the, the angry kind of personal appearance. And it's a, it does two things. One, it pushes away everybody that you want to push away. And it, 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 it opposes everybody and, and tells them, I'm angry, leave me alone. Okay. But at the same time, it pulls in your in-group. The people who are alike, who are, feel like you and who, who are in that same place see that and they see, oh, that person's like me so I can identify with them. And so that is an easier way to, to make a friendship on that level when they see the personal connection there. So even something that's abrasively angry side is also can have the, the purpose of bringing in someone who agrees with you to cause, to make an in-group of friends they can care about. Mm -hmm. And we see that also happening on the negative side in something like troll culture. We have the internet now where everybody, the anonymity of the internet makes everybody be able to say whatever they want without any ramifications. And, and also has a whole selection of cheerleaders to, to egg you on to say you're great. You need to keep making that 
disgusting remark. It used to be that if you were a bully or if you were a racist or if you hated women or if you, you were a sexual abuser, you might have two or three buddies that would cheer you on, but everybody else around you would point you out that you're an asshole. Mm-hmm. Okay. But at now, least two or three buddies to, you can connect with on a different level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have two or three buddies you connect with on a different level, but the rest of society would be like, nah, you're a dick. And so you need to go away. And so you, would, you wouldn't have the mass positive enforcement. Now you'd be that same asshole. And there's entire chat groups and entire subreddits devoted to cheering you on and telling you not only are you good at that, but here's how you should be more of an asshole. And here's how you should be more of a sexist prick. And here's how you could be even more racist. And so with the, that, the, what I was talking about earlier with the, having the, the attention, the negative attention and the negative uh, reinforcement can be positive. That's happening now in society where the negative reinforcement for these people, it's their positive in-group. That they're, this is what their friends are cheering them on doing. And so that's how we end up with things like incels where the kids who are lonely and can't get a girlfriend, they have other friends who can't get girlfriends and they say, oh, well, women hate us, so we have to kill them all. And yeah, yeah. that kind of insanity only happens when you're in that isolated subgroup of negative reinforcement. And I think that's the real hardest thing to combat, but the only way you can do it is by normalizing the, the, normalizing the kindness, aspect, normalizing being nice to someone. Okay. To, so the, oh, go ahead. How would you approach this practically? So let's say I, I have the feeling that someone I know, I've seen someone in my school, someone, you know, someone around mm-hmm. is acting strangely. Mm-hmm. Personally, I would feel strange walking up to that guy or to that gal and, and say, hey, what's wrong with you? Because then you kind of imply that something is going on. So what yeah. would be a good way to do that? What would be a good way to connect? Start off, start off with just saying, hi, how you doing? You want to grab some lunch? Mm. Don't ask them how they're doing. Just ask, or don't ask them what's wrong with them. Just be like, hey, how's it going? Did you see that movie last night? Do you want to go catch a movie? Do you want to, do you want to hang out after, work, after school? Do you want to go hang out after work? Like, I got nothing to do today. You want to go chill? Hmm. Like, do that. Treat it like a person. Like, the, the, especially if that kid's old, uh, if let's say, let's take a, a hypothetical. You're at work or you're at, you're at your school, okay? And you see the kid off to the side who is really angry himself and he keeps his head down. He's obviously mad about stuff, but he smells bad and he always looks kind of disheveled and you think that he might be going through problems at home but something is a bit off about him, but you can't tell what, okay? How do you react to that kid? I would say, go over to him and ask him how his day was. Go over to him and ask him what kind of movie he likes. Go over to him, if he's writing something, ask him what he's writing. If he's listening to music, ask him what song, what music he listens to. Treat him like he's actually a person. Treat him the same way you would treat the guy sitting next to him who's not doing anything wrong. Treat him like that. We'll go up, go up to him and, and be normal with him and be like, hey, dude, did you, just, did you see the new Avengers movie? You know, which would, would you think Captain America would win or, or Iron Man would win if they fought? Like, like, have the normal conversations that aren't about, oh, you're, you're depressed and what, how, how, what's it like being depressed or how's it like at home with your family beating you? Break down the walls of normalcy first. Make it comfortable for them you on a friendship level, knowing that you're not going to judge them because of how they look or how they, how they, um, what they seem like or what, how you're not going to judge them on their pain Mm -hmm. because people are really afraid of being judged on their pain. Mm 
Be the person who's not going to judge them on their pain. Be the person who's just going to be like, okay, dude, that's okay. It's, it's normal to feel like that when shit's happening to you, dude. It's all right. You're not a bad person. I like you. It's okay. I understand you might smell a bit bad, but I'm still going to sit next to you because you seem like you're a cool guy. What and, if they push me away? What if they think that I'm just mocking them? Or what if they think I was just one, another one of those guys? Who the, just, only, the only, oh, the only way to combat that, that is... Step my the, back. That, that's, a, that's a constant problem. The only way to combat that is consistency. Mm-hmm. Be consistent and be normal with it. Be, be, have it be a real thing. If when they push you away, then you shy away and you run away, then they were right. Then you were only there to give them pity. And as soon as they got tough, then you went away. Mm-hmm. Be the person who's not going to do that. Be like, all right, dude, it's all right. I'll come to you tomorrow. Go tomorrow okay. and ask him again. Just be consistent. Be the, be the bright spot in their life. Because then, even if they're pushing you away all the time, and even if it seems like they don't like you, and even if it seems like that you're, that you're not breaking through to them, when, it, when things go down, I'd be willing to bet you'd be the one they'd come to first because you're the normal one who's always been nice to them, who's always treated them kindly, and has always been the consistent, calm spot. When you're in that tornado of chaos, you need to have one calm spot that, that you can actually stand on and not have the tornado hit you. And when some random person is like, okay, cool, dude, you're, you're all right. I, I still like you. It's okay. Don't worry about it. That can become your spot of, of calmness. And even if it's not going to work every time, okay, it's not going to work every time and it's not going to work with everybody. But even if it works with one person, it's worth trying. And the fact that it's, it's completely free it doesn't hurt you at all. It's not going to take anything away from you to treat someone else like a person. And if that simple act of treating someone like a person can then stop that person from doing something terrible to themselves or to someone else, then you have succeeded in, in all aspects of life. That, that's, there shouldn't be any higher calling to help someone out of that depression. Definitely. What are warning signs? How can I... Um, there's, there's, there's a couple and they seem to be diametrically opposed. Um, so there's the obvious warning signs that you can see blatantly, like, um, the coming, coming to school with bruises, um, having a, uh, outlandish anger problem, um, racism, misogyny, um, being involved in a negative in group. Those, those things tend to be expressions of inward pain. Being involved in something like an incel group says that you don't like yourself very much. And so you're doing what you can to make everybody else not like you too. Because that's a simple fact. When you hate yourself and everybody, if, if you think everybody else hates you, then you're going to hate yourself. And then you do everything you can to make everybody else hate you too, because that's the way you think it should be. Mm-hmm. And when, when you, the, when you see someone like that, who's in that group, the warning signs, <clears throat> excuse me, I lost my slightly lost my train of chat, but I'm getting back onto it. So the warning signs for, for looking at those kind of groups, having the negative subgroup, having the anger problem, but then there's the flip side of it. The flip side is it's the going insulated going insular, go, turning inward. Okay. Being completely shut off, being really quiet, giving away all personal belongings that, that, uh, they normally would would cherish. That's a big one. Um, okay. Being completely shut off from social interaction. That's a big one. Um, not having any emotional affectation for things. If something looks like it should hurt someone, but then they don't respond like they have any emotional reaction whatsoever. That's a big warning sign because that means they're close to not giving a crap about anything. Okay. And the, so it's either extreme. The the moderation is key to everything, including moderation. So when you, when you have the, the, the 
swinging pendulum of sometimes I feel bad, some days I feel good, and I'm kind of swinging on this. That's a normal pendulum. But as soon as that pendulum gets stuck on either one of those sides, that I'm either all the, always pissed off or I'm always sullen, that's really when the danger signs start to hit. Because then your pendulum swinging in an entirely different arc. Okay, because it's not that your pendulum stopped in anger. It's that now you're swinging inside of anger. So either you're lightly pissed off or you're extremely pissed off that you never really come out of the anger part. So in the same thing with depression, either you're lightly depressed or you're extremely depressed, but you never get to swing back out into the light. So those are the really big uh, spots. And if you see someone who's having those kind of issues, just the, use your discretion. If they're obviously making threats and they're obviously making threats of violence, do report. There, there is a line where you just have public safety and you do have to report. But not every depressed kid is a school shooter. And not every kid who's in that pain is a threat. And if you... Oh, I don't want to sign out. Um, if you look at these people like they're a threat, then you will completely, you're, you're just going to make the problem worse. You're going to create more darkness. Okay. So you talked about uh, being bullied, not by one or two or three people, but by a large amount of, of people at those schools. Mm -hmm. So what if my daughter, my son is being bullied? I see that there's a problem. I wanted to shut down. I'm like, no, I don't want to. And then all of a sudden my entire computer, see there's, there's my screen. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. But that works just as well if it's okay for you. Yeah, it works fine for me. Yeah, perfect. Okay, wonderful. Um, yeah, so I think we left off uh, with a question. Uh, what if I realize that my, my son, my daughter is being bullied at school? Um, I don't know, he or she is acting strange. So how can I help them to get out of that? Or how can I help them to react to those bullies? Hmm. That's, that's a, that's a tough one. I would say the first one is to, to remember to remember to have empathy, to remember that the, that the bullies that are bullying them most likely are having extreme troubles in their own lives. So they're probably going through a lot of issues, dealing with a lot of um, extreme things. So to have a bit of empathy for them, to stay safe, that if it gets to a point where they feel like they're actually in any danger to make sure they report it, Make sure they talk to their school officials and, and um, anyone they would need to for that. But to try to look at the humanity of it first. Try to look at the person who's bullying them less as an attacker and more as a victim themselves of whatever pain they're going through. But that, that doesn't really help them much in the sense that um, the situation... It doesn't. It doesn't. And it's hard, it's hard to, have the, to make the situation change. The... It's, it's, it's really hard without attacking the root cause of the bullying. The, if you're in school and you're getting bullied, I go to the, go to the official and tell the official what's going on and see if they can help. But bullying isn't just a single incident kind of thing. The bully who's doing that isn't just a bully during the five minutes they're picking on you. They're that way the rest of the day. So I would say, try to reach out to them or show them empathy in, in a way and show them that you're human. The more you humanize them yourself, the more they'll look at you like you might be part of their positive in-group too. Okay. Okay, I see. Okay. Um, you mentioned your parents a lot and the abuse you got by your parents. So where are they today? Uh, well, my stepdad is dead. Mm -hmm. uh, he died seven or eight months ago. 
my real dad, I haven't seen since I was like 14. Mm-hmm. And I think he's dead. Last time I saw him was up in Oregon and I, that didn't go well. Um, and then my mom is still alive, but I haven't spoken to her and since I started talking about this. So going on six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you couldn't do anything against your, your mother or your father because mm-hmm. they're family. And what kind of feelings do you have towards them now that you've changed your life, now that you have a family, now that you got everything under control? I mean, they've been a major part of your suffering for a long mm-hmm. time of your life. For most of them, for most of them, I don't have any feelings at all except for hatred. So for, for my, for my mom and my brother, I still have some love. My brother, I have lots of animosity to. He went through a lot of the same stuff I did, only he handles it entirely differently. And he continued the cycle of destructive abuse and alcoholism and drug abuse. And just, he's continuing on that same path. And my mom She's my mom, so I'll always, I've always, I, I'll always love her and I'll always be there for her when she needs me. But I don't, as a person, I don't like her. Mm. Like, as just as, as a person, none of my family are people that I would hang out with. I wouldn't, I would never like be with them socially. And my extended family, I don't have any dealings with whatsoever, my, except for some a couple cousins who are way far out. You didn't have anything to do with any of this. But anybody who, any aunts or uncles who are dealing with that kind of uh, drug abuse, especially from my stepdad's side, I don't have anything to do with any of them. In fact, I blatantly told them all that I don't love them. I am not part of their family and they should not consider me to be part of their family. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I, I took the, the um, perspective that cutting out the toxic elements of the life is better than trying to rectify the toxic situation. Mm-hmm. and sometimes it's painful sometimes it's not but it, it this is it's cost me more than just to that family members though i've lost a couple best friends mm-hmm. because of my because of coming out um that they either were too shocked by my story of what i went through and they didn't ever realize that i had gone there and that made them not like me anymore or um they thought that i was be trying to do it for political reason and so they stop talking to me too, which I, those ones I really regret because if they'd have paid more attention, it's not political at all. In fact, I'm trying to be as apolitical as possible with it. So, okay. But yeah, it's, it's definitely hasn't come without cost. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that from the time you were 20, when you last had those suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. um, it was a long healing process, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. What's happened during the healing process and what can family members, friends do to support someone in that healing process once someone has made the, the step of that? Well, there's, there's a couple of big steps that, they have, that happen. Um, the first is acknowledging the actual feelings. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people don't want to pay attention to how they're really feeling. They, they try to mask it over. I was doing that a lot with my escapism, with trying to go and run into other things and change my reality. Um, acknowledging that these things really did happen, that this pain is a real thing, and my reaction to it is not a, a terrible reaction. That is was one of the first big steps, owning my own feelings about it. And then once I did that, the the other biggest step is 
trying to not move on, but adjust my reality to the situations that I've been in. So instead of trying to say, just get over the, the things I went through, they all, they all just color me and, and they shape who I am now. So I, I, I do say that I learned a lot from my parents. Like I learned a lot about parenting. I learned what not to do. Not to so do Sometimes. with, with, yeah, with my own kids, like one of the things growing up with me was complete lack of consistency because of the chaotic nature of my family. There was a lot of, uh, when, when I needed to be disciplined, they would go right to the worst thing. Like I, I would get in trouble. And mom would scream at me. I'm going to kick your ass and you need to get the fuck out of my house. You need to leave right away. And then 20 minutes later, she asked me to come hang out with her and watch, watch TV and like nothing actually happened. And so that completely undercut any authority and undercut any trust that I had of her as a parent. Mm -hmm. And so with my own kids, I am the model of consistency. I get, I get mad at the same things the same way. Every time, if I tell you you're going to be grounded for a week, you're going to be grounded for a week, but I'm also not going to fly off the handle and be upset about random things just because I feel like being mad. You know, I'm, I just, I just make myself consistent Mm -hmm. and I've never struck my kids in anger. I've never had I've, I've never done drugs in front of my kids except for marijuana, but I live in Denver and it's legal here. So that's, it's a whole different situation. Um, it's using those examples of the things that I had happened to me and breaking that cycle and changing it. And the biggest achievement that I've managed to, to get in my entire life is that my 17 year old daughter tells everybody that I'm her best friend. Mm-hmm, and when I was 17, I wouldn't talk to my, my parents without yelling and, we sit and have the best fun conversations and she tells me all about her love life. She tells me she, my 17 year old daughter comes to me to talk to me about her love life with a boyfriend. How many dads to get to have that happen to them? Well, my daughters are not in that age yet, but I hope they will when they reach that age. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a conversation that most, some dads might not want to have, but I, but I tell you, it does nothing makes you feel better than, you know, you have that kind of comfortability and, and secureness that she's safe enough to come talk to me about that kind of stuff, you know? I'm not, I'm not sure I want to have it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's an awkward conversation to have, but having yeah. it is the, the fact, fact that, that I was able to have it means that it's a worthwhile thing to have. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And it's do your best to break the cycle is what I I. I it's yeah. Sorry, I kind of rambled on that last answer. No, no, that's fine. It's fine. Um, so, so it's what's what's next for you? I mean, you've received a lot of attention. Um, mm-hmm. Started giving speeches, as far as I know, in schools. And so, what, what's what's the plan? I mean, uh, well, I have a couple of really big things coming up. Um, I'm going to be working with. I, I I keep on getting connected with people who want to work with me from all over the country, and usually it's either for a political purpose or they want for a religious one. So either they want to have me help me get them elected or they want to help me bring everybody to Jesus. And I don't want to do either one of those. So um, I've avoided tearing up with most people, but there's a couple groups recently that approached me that are really interesting. Um, there's a couple guys out of South Carolina. They run a group called proactive RG and there are a couple of guys who used to be SWAT um, officers. They're okay. career SWAT officers, one for eight years, I believe one for 12 years. And They recently quit the SWAT team to start this real world training program where they go into schools and they show real world threat preparedness to teach you how to spot a potential shooter, what to do if someone's bleeding next to you, how to take away a gun, how to barricade a room, like real world threat assessment. And, but they've encountered an issue where some places think that that might be profiling 
kids or that there's too much aggression and not enough um, sympathy. And so we're actually going to team up to make a program tentatively called uh, have a, have a heart, but have a plan Mm -hmm. where it's, you have to have the the plan for what to do, but also have the empathy to know when to do it. And so we're going to be teaming up for that coming up here soon. I'm supposed to be flying out to go speak with them within the next month. And I have another big story already filmed that's going to be coming out in November. That is a big uh, multi-channel coordinated effort about the lack of competent counselors in schools. The, there's a station that reached out for me from Dallas, Texas, WFAA in Dallas. They reached out to me about how um, in their school district, they, they, covered the, they broadcast to the largest school district in America. Mm-hmm. And in their school district, there's such a lack of competent counselors. There's something like an average of one per 200 students, but then a, a hefty percentage, 20 to, 20 to 30% of the schools have no counselors whatsoever. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so that's, it's going to be focused on that. That's coming out in mid-November. Um, I'm writing a book. I'm halfway through my manuscript on the book. I am doing everything I can to speak at schools and go talk wherever anybody with a pulse will want to listen. If you want to reach me or contact me or anybody wants to get a hold of me, they can find me at Twitter at, at Stark Author or at StarkDad1313. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also reach me by email at AaronStarkAuthor at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook, uh, Aaron Stark. Um, and the picture of me is out of uh, my TED talk. Um, I'm open to any inquiries. I also, I've, I've, I've evidently been, not evidently, I've been deluged with people wanting to contact me, just call me to help them with their own personal issues. And I'm cool with doing that too. I think it's one of the most rewarding things of this is the personal aspect of it. So it doesn't matter if you're a corporation or just a regular person. If you want to talk, I'm down to talk. Okay. Um, yeah, I got, I got, a lot of stuff coming along, so stay tuned. Definitely, definitely, we'll check out. And I recommend to everyone watching this to really check out. And uh, I mean, you have an amazing story, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, and, and everybody can already find the two big things I've done already. I have wrote an article for the Washington Post entitled "I Would Have Been a School Shooter." Mm-hmm. Um, that that's uh, fifteen hundred words. I got that's a more detailed version of my life story. Um, and then I did my TED Talk, TEDx Talk for TEDx Boulder, and that's on YouTube. And that's about, I believe. I think right now is crossing 4.6 million views. That's amazing. That's amazing. How, how did that happen? Did they reach out to you or? Actually, I, re- I saw that it was coming. So I reached out to them and I applied. Um, you have to go through an application process and you have to go through a couple tryouts. Um, yeah. But I did. And it was the most amazing and, and bizarre experience I've ever went through. Uh, I had heard that TED Talks were very regimented and very to the to the letter like you had to have your script down and you had to be practiced and all that the odd fact about my ted talk i never wrote it down ever and i didn't even practice it the week beforehand i would i would only do it at the practices when i had to perform it because it's it's just my life story so i didn't really need to prepare that much but it was kind of odd that I'm sitting there not really preparing, but people next to me are working meticulously over every little detail of their script. And it was amazing. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And all the different speakers that night were, were fantastic. It was just, it was great. I guess the hardest thing is getting the timing right. For- uh, yeah, it was, I actually went, a, I think a minute over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But luckily they, they liked it. So they will just were like, keep going, just keep going. So yeah, it was, 
the getting the timing right and honestly not breaking down too much every time because I can't help. Uh, I think I did a couple times even during this talk. I can't help but tear up at a couple spots during my story just because it's still so raw and on the surface. And I want to keep it raw and on the surface because I really think that having a seeing that there's a real person that feels this and it's not just some faceless statistic is really important. And there's a millions of, of faces like mine. So the, I'm just a regular guy go, that went through all this stuff. But if I can help show other people that it's not, doesn't make you a monster, then it, it's completely worth it. No, absolutely not. And I mean, that's what I found amazing about your talk. And that's why I actually reached out to you because um, your story is relatable. You made it relatable, even if for someone who was not in that situation, luckily, um, it made me understand what's really hap happening inside uh, someone's head. Yeah. Being bullied yeah. And who's, who's in a situation and um, also that it doesn't take much to really help those people or to you know, it doesn't it doesn't it's not yeah it's not some it's not some giant plan we have to do or some massive program it's literally just being nice just smile be friendly treat the person like a person mm -hmm. treat the what treat the person who doesn't feel like they're human like they're a person give love to the people we think deserve it the least because they need it the most no no yeah so what about, I think it's Mike is his name, right? Mike. Yeah. Mike. He's, you're still in touch with him? He was, oh, absolutely. He's my best friend. He's, yeah. he's, he's uncle to my kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. we, so yeah, we, we talk every couple of days. Yeah. So what, Just was last, your, what was that? So what does he think about your developments or your... He's, he's super proud and encourages me completely. For him, it's a bit weird for him because I'm talking publicly about the conversations that we've had privately for decades. So it's like, he's like, yeah, dude, I'm going to go watch you speak and say the same thing I've heard you say a thousand times. So, okay. So for him, on that level, it's a bit weird for him, but he couldn't be prouder. He's, he's couldn't be more supportive. He has... I've done so much that it could potentially be friendship ruining with him. And he has overlooked all of it to the point where it's, we, I, I literally, I, I love my wife to death, but he's the one human I'd pick over my wife. If I, if I had to choose to, I'd probably pick Mike because he's saved me over everybody in my entire life more times than I could ever count. So I understand. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I literally could not have a better friend and my kids could not have a better uncle. So yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Hey man. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, it's amazing. There's just so much in it to digest and I guess there's so many, so many takeaways for um, everyone watching this and um, you're truly an inspiration for, for a lot of thank, thank you for, thank you for listening and thank you for having me on. I just, like I said, I just, I just want to help show a kid who's in that dark spot that there's a way out that you don't have to live in that darkness, that there is a light at the end of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, this whole thing really hit you over the head, I guess. I mean, uh, you're, yeah, I was just a stay at home, I was just a stay at home dad playing video games beforehand. Mm -hmm. Like I went from being sitting at home playing Spider-Man to being talking on national TV and being seen by millions. And the, 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 here's one important takeaway. If I could have anybody take something away from this, if The, the amount of responses that I've inspired, people co coming to me with their, with their issues, coming to me with their stories of pain from all over the world, stories like a gentleman in Pakistan who was getting so abused and so bullied that he couldn't talk about it because they would literally, they would literally kill him where he lived, but he sent me a message. If I could inspire them to come out with, my, with their stories, well, it wasn't really scary to me. It was just my normal. 
what could they inspire when they talk? Yeah. If you have a story of darkness and if you have a story of pain, speak out and speak your truth. The truth really will set you free and you'll never have any idea how many people you could connect with and could help just by talking about what happened with you in your life. Talking about normalizing the pain and making it re- everybody see that it's not just the monsters that go through it. It's just the regular people. Yeah. And please speak out and share. Share your own stories. And what would you recommend to victims of abuse? So if you're in an abusive family, mm-hmm. um, if you have a family member who is on a regular basis, if maybe it's the extended family, maybe it's um, some other people. So what would you tell those people? What should they do? Keep moving. Keep going forward. The only, the only thing that's constant in this life is change. The only thing that's absolutely certain is that tomorrow is going to be different than today. And today might be terrible and today might be full of darkness, but tomorrow is going to be different in one way or another. So the only thing we can do is adapt to these changes and not, not refuse to accept the devastation left in the wake of change. Mm-hmm. Realize that there, that eventually you will look back and see that this will, this will all be different. And if you keep moving One step in front of the other. It, it might seem like a really hard thing to move forward when you're in that darkness, but one small step at a time. Left foot and then right foot and then followed by left foot again. And eventually you're going to be running. Just just please keep walking. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. So, Thank you. Aaron, I have two questions I always ask the people I'm um, talking to. Sure. And the first question is, I, well, we had this conversation because you truly are an exceptional person. Um, Who do you consider an exceptional person I might even talk to next? Um, I would say Christian Picciolini. Mm-hmm. He is a ex-white supremacist. He was one of the founders of, I believe it's Hammerfall is the name of the organization, but I don't know the exact name. I don't care to know the exact name. It was a white, white power organization in the 80s. And he was one of the founders of it and one of the leaders of the white power movement in America. And over the last 20 years, he has left it and now spends his life fighting to bring people out of that hatred and to combat xenophobia and racism. So I'd say that he, he inspires me greatly on a lot of levels. And I'd say that he would be a great one to talk to. Okay, I'll do my best to reach out to him and see if we can make this happen. Mm-hmm. And so my last question is um, to close up this call. Um, what's your message to the world? What do you want to... If I could distill it down to one message, it's give love to the people who you think deserve it the least because they need it the most. The person who you think is in pain, who you think is, is different than you, they, they have the same, they bleed the same way you do. They go to the bathroom the same way you do. They eat food the same way you do. They just look at the world differently and they think differently. They could worship a different God. Or they could look at a different political party. Or they could listen to different music. They could like a different sports team. None of that makes them a, different, a, a worse person than you. None of that makes them evil. It just makes them different. Hmm. Embrace the differences and learn, realize that we are all different. We are all that, that outcast in a way. So give love to the people who we feel deserve it the least. They need it the most. Wonderful. Aaron Stark, I thank you so much. And thank you very much for having me. I really had, it was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching and in a few seconds you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, 
finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change. That's what's most important to me. But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website you will find all current and upcoming episodes including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content, so don't forget to sign up and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Devin Person. When Devin decided to reinvent his life in search of more fulfillment and purpose, he chose a rather unusual path. He decided to become a wizard. As the subway wizard of New York, Devin now brings a little magic into the lives of commuters and helps people and companies to create a better reality for themselves. Rob and Devin talk about finding your purpose in life, creating the reality you want, the surprising role a medication for his knee played in becoming a wizard, and much more. Join the conversation now.